Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to episode 103, Rocco's Basilisk. Um, This is part of our series exploring transhumanism and kind of chasing down a theory. Um, We're kind of putting pieces together and sort of uh, just letting ourselves follow this rabbit down the hole and uh, testing out connections that jump out to us to see if they hold water over time. So we've been following a timeline and... um, Our last episode got us to 1997. So I just want to kind of recap about where that brings us. Um, That's been 250 years since the Industrial Revolution, uh, when we really started making this uh, concerted push for the machines, the factories, the machines to take over our lives, uh, supposedly to serve us. Um, Trains have been going and shipping um, our goods and the train tracks have just been wrapping all across the land for 200 years, and it's such an effective mode of transportation that we still have these trains among us, these giant lumbering machines. Um, we now carry around telephones, mobile telephones. It's it's considered irresponsible even not to have your, your cell phone on you. What if somebody gets hurt? What if somebody needs to tell you something? Uh, even your children, it's being encouraged, they should carry a cell phone. Nobody should be out of touch of the network, um, incommunicado, ever. So always keep your cell phone on you. We've had these radios and televisions now for many, many decades, uh, pumping propaganda into us, telling us um, the news or certain versions of the news, and um, with, of course, people that own the newspapers that are promoting their own versions of events. And um, the news and television has widely been understood for all this time to be a propaganda tool. Um, Again and again, through CIA operations, through the admission of uh, presidents themselves and um, news companies, through uh, Noam Chomsky and his manufacture of consent, um, we see that it's not accidental that radio and television is used to affect and formulate what we think. We've been addicted to electricity for well over a hundred years, so addicted that most people don't even fathom letting go of electricity as a choice. We see ourselves as an animal, a, a parasite on the, um, 
what would you call it, people? The grid. Hmm. Um, car culture has been with us for about 100 years. People step inside these giant exoskeletons that help them transcend their biological limitations with machines that uh, are stronger and faster. And it's, it's greatly altered the way we relate to each other along with the phone, the distances we travel, the distances we move away from the people we love, um, the distances we go for the products that we consume, um, for our daily work. <clears throat> so, and just the year before 1997, we've got uh, the, what was it called, the Tamagotchi? Oh, yeah. A new toy marketed to children, um, a little tiny computer that is their friend, that makes demands of them, that gets hungry, that, uh, you know, kind of taps into that caregiver, that, that parental feeling in children that's starting to bud, that, that biological animal impulse, and is now channeling it towards a machine. And this comes after the decade of the 80s, when, as we uh, went over last episode, there were so many movies, so many TV shows promoting AI, promoting machines, promoting robots. Um, and just let that sink in for a second, because for millennia, I don't know, as long as there have been uh, artifacts found, children were taught about how to care for others, maybe by little fashioned dolls or figurines. And then, of course, you know, getting up into the 1980s, you had Cabbage Patch dolls and all sorts of other dolly-type toys. But now... You've got this very electronic, very um, unreal thing. that is, It's so abstract, but subtly teaching the children, like, look, this is a machine you can care for. You can, you can create a bond between you and the machine also. Mm-hmm. We also have laptops that people are carrying around. And let's remember what these things truly are. It's really easy to think of... Uh, Transhuman cyborgs, like, oh man, I would never get a microchip put in me. But already, these machines we're talking about are machines, computers that are, um, God, how would I say this? Helping us, well, at the risk of being redundant, transcend our biological limitations. Already, they're sort of cyborg type devices. The only difference is they're not directly attached to our skin, although with things like the cell phone, they're getting so mobile they might as well be. They're attached to our belts. They're in our pockets. We never leave them. To find some way to attach it to the skin, it's hardly a big leap from what we're already being uh, encouraged to do and what we're allowing ourselves to uh, fall into the habit of. We have little computers that we carry around. We don't have to just leave them at home anymore. Little parts of our brain that do things that our brains can't do, process information, uh, extend our memory greatly. We have the internet that's been with us for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years at this point, 1998, that is this whole mysterious world that's quickly taking over control of everything. Um, more and more corporations, more and more um, of so many of our daily routines, we're entrusting to computers that are being controlled through the Internet. And I don't know what your experience was. You were on the road in 1998 and probably didn't have too much to do with computers before or after that, except, like you said, in school you won an award in, like, what, elementary school or something? Yeah. 
Um, but as I was growing up in high school, the internet was starting to become available through America Online. And my, my dad, you know, he was like, well, we should get that and, you know, check it out. And we had dial-up internet um, probably around 1997 or 98. And it, as a teenager, um, I guess I would have been, what, like 16, 17 years old at that point. To me, it was like uh, another way to communicate potentially with people, maybe people that you didn't even know. Like it was kind of exciting to be able to go into a chat room and talk with strangers, even though I was underage. So I had to be careful about who I was actually chatting with um, and having email to check. Like it, it seemed like it was a such an innocent switch over from checking the mailbox for a letter from a friend or a letter from a family member to checking your email. It's, it's just email. It's just electronic, you know? Like, you could even get it faster. You don't have to worry about, like, what time of day or what day of the week someone sends it. It'll get to you instantaneously as soon as you, you know, log on to your America Online account. And I just felt like uh, it didn't really add much to my life. It just started taking away time from other things. Yeah, I mean, I'll get to, I definitely <clears throat> remember clearly what I was thinking about the, the machines and the computers at that time. Let me add a couple more things to just give us a context to where we're at. Uh, and, of course, there's so many. I'm not going to try to make a complete list, but we've also got drones that, people, that the military have been working on since the 1950s so we can have wars fought with machines. Um, imagine Terminator, you know? That's basically what we're seeing in the dystopian future of the Terminator world. We've got bombs that can blow up cities that uh, use the power of matter itself, the atom, um, that give people cancer, that poison the land, that poison people in ways that we're still trying to wrap our minds around all the implications of this. And, um, you know, as I said in our last episode, we've got GPS in these cars that are now telling us where to go so we don't have to pay attention to the world around us. We don't even need to look at landmarks or anything. Just listen to the computer. Turn left at the next light. And, of course, a year before, we have the first self-checkout. So as all these things are happening that are spreading us out further and further away from each other, um, sucking the humanity out of our lives, out of our existence, now the self-checkout. One more brick in the wall. Um, you don't even have to make conversation with a, a teller at a grocery store, a, a cashier. Now you just go up to a machine and scan your device and no human interaction whatsoever to get your goods. And this is all considered improvement. And to address what you said, Teresa... One of the things that's fascinated me, and I remember thinking this back then, and I still think it, is the computers were always sold to us like they had that novelty of, that 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 charm of novelty. It was new. It was a new way to interact. Chat rooms, you know, all these things. And people, you know, now we've learned the word neophilia. People were neophiles. They really loved new things, which is kind of a, uh, in itself, not a bad thing. Learning new things can help your survival. Um, and we're being pushed more and more into technophilia, just this love affair that's very promoted and sold to us, love affair with the computers, with technology, with the machines. And it's always sold like things are getting better. But I remember even back in the 90s, as the libraries were getting computerized, as the banks were getting computerized, how many times I'd be in a line with somebody exasperated that their computer was not working. 
And I would make jokes, and I still make jokes now, like almost 25 years later of, so when are the computers supposed to improve things? <laughs> you remember when we just had paper and stuff like that to deal with, uh, index cards at the library? Seemed pretty damn simple. I don't remember a whole lot of frustration with that. Well, and it's funny, too, because people, including myself, I mean, I would prefer to have printouts of a lot of the things that I try to read on my device or on, you know, on a laptop or something. It's just, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm 40 and I grew up more with paper, but I don't like looking at a screen because I can't easily highlight things. I can't have them in front of me when I'm offline because I don't know if my battery power is going to go out. Yeah, and you're talking about a preference, and you're also talking about kind of a, a hardship with your lifestyle. And I'm but also... most people would be at home with things plugged in, and they've gotten more used to it, perhaps. I would go further than just the preference of you not liking a screen. It doesn't, even the people that are really good at this shit, they seem to constantly be running into walls where this shit doesn't work. It fails them. They get exasperated. They spend more time trying to troubleshoot what's wrong with their computer than if they'd just taken out a damn pen and paper in the first place. Definitely. And I was just going to say, I used to work uh, the self-checkout at a grocery store in, oh, like the early 2000s, like I'd say 2000, 2001. And um, boy, what a, you know, what a change 20 years has made. The first people that would come through the checkout were either young people that were from a bigger city, because I lived in a very podunk southern country town, or you'd have people from said podunk southern country town trying it and getting exasperated, and I would, like, try to explain this new technology, and it would be met with a lot of, um, ire. <laughs> but nowadays, look, like, everybody goes through the self-checkout. If you don't go through the self-checkout, yeah, you must be one of those, uh, I don't know, Luddites or something. And as been pointed out, and I'm going to talk about more later in perhaps this episode, it's usually opened up as a choice. You can go through the self-checkout, but you don't have to. You can go through line, too. But now, you know, 25 years into the self-checkout, how many times I've seen one line way backed up for people who don't want to do the self-checkout. I even encountered, uh, I think it was at a Walmart in Waynesville, or Waynesboro, and they had no checkouts open they only had the self-checkout you were forced to use the self-checkout in that instance and that's not even really getting into the problem of the haves and the have-nots that these computers are taking away jobs yeah um and again you know like i tried to emphasize last episode it's not addressing a need there was no need for this there's no poor grocer you know head manager of the grocery store that's in danger of having a line up at the soup kitchen because he can't pay this many employees. It's not a need. There's another agenda being pushed. And I could say that with all this technology. They never show up because there's a need. And something else to tag on to that is there's an argument that, well, these type of menial jobs, you know, like nobody really wants to be a cashier. Well, I was a cashier for over seven years, and no, it's not its not always pleasant, it's not always fun, but not everyone wants to go to a postgraduate program and learn about electrical engineering. Not everybody wants to work on computers, not everybody wants to learn about science, technology, engineering, and math. Some people like to actually be around people 
and they like to just have some menial job that they don't have to turn their brains all the way up. They can just kind of go there, make a little bit of money to have a simple life and go home and they don't bring their work with them. And those jobs are quickly disappearing. And, you know, now during the pandemic, we see all these help wanted signs for uh, fast food and, and other such menial jobs. And um, I don't know. It seems to me like uh, maybe the moment has passed. People are just done with being treated like shit and being replaced by computers all the time. Yeah, and I wouldn't be so uh, so much, so quick to mourn the loss of these jobs if it meant us returning to having to uh, take care of our own homes, grow our own food. But the loss of these jobs is part of a path, a transhumanist, as I'm coming to understand it, path, where we're getting even further removed from our connection to the land. We're getting so abstract. I mean, our very reality is becoming virtual reality. And so that brings us, that catches us up to 1998. So... I just kind of wanted to recap right there. And we're in the North Carolina Carolina mountains right now at a free campsite. Um, Teresa's mom is actually with us, camping with us, which has been pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. And um, Teresa and her mom are about to leave on a road trip for a week. So it's going to be me by my lonesome probably doing the next episode. Um, so in 1998, you know, we have a new toy. After Tamagotchi, just one year after Tamagotchi has been released and, you know, all the children are using their little computer Tamagotchis, Furby. 1998 was the year of Furby. You can, you don't worry about Sherlock. He often barks when he's much closer. So, Furby. And Furby is a creepy-ass toy. We all knew it. If you start looking up, like, spooky stories about Furby, oh my god, um... The stories just go on and on. There are stories about Furbies that have batteries taken out of them and are put in the closet. And four years later, people go to check on their Furby, and the Furby opens its damn eyes. There are Furbies that say strange things about people's, like, uh, dead parents that I was reading about. Um, Just really creepy crap. Um, The Furby was a very bizarre toy, and I look at it now like part of the, the salesmanship, the propaganda of selling us the machines. Now we wrap our artificial intelligence in fuzzy little skins and give them to our children. And we have a whole generation. Keep in mind, this is 1998. These are the children right now that are getting into politics, that are running businesses, that are stepping into the leadership roles in our culture. And they grew up with artificial intelligence and robots as little fuzzy toys giving the simulation of being a caretaker, not like actually having a pet where you have to, you know, uh, take care of them, feed them, uh, look after their health, but the simulation of it. So that was a big step removed from actual life that happened with with things like this with Furby. I, I see Furby as a real uh, symbol of where we're at. And 1998 was indeed the year I took off to be a hobo. Um, I don't remember it being because of Furby per se, but let me tell you, Furby didn't make me want to stay in civilization. <laughs> I have something else for 1998. I was going down my list of transhumanists, and there was a guy by the name of Lee Daniel Crocker, an American computer programmer best known for rewriting software upon which Wikipedia runs. And this was a Wikipedia article on him. He was one of the 23 original creators of 
the Transhumanist Declaration that was created in 1998. Hmm. And I didn't read it. I didn't read the Transhumanist Declaration. I think I have it on my device. But I just wanted to throw that in there. They had already like, Well, that would be more interesting if we knew what the Transhumanist Declaration actually was. Well, maybe we'll bring it up in a future episode. And I also wanted to add what you said about like the generation that was growing up with the Tamagotchis and Furbies and self-checkouts. They're not only, you know, running in politics and and having huge influences on society, but also in finance. There's a lot of the kids that were growing up at that time in the 80s and 90s who are now into and creating things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, and they are donating hundreds of millions of whatever that currency is, Bitcoin, Ethereum, to research into transhumanist um, experimentation and and agenda points. Hmm. And we'll talk more about that when we kind of get into the later 2000s. In 1999, a year after Furby, one year into children having little Furbies as pets and toys, um, Furbies are actually banned from national the NSA property. So this little toy is considered so dangerous that... Uh, some of our uh, secret service organizations and uh, national security organizations are banning it from the property. A kid could not come in with a Furby um, because they can repeat information. They can record information. They can speak this information. They can even change the information and speak it out whenever they wish at odd times, really inconvenient times. Um, 1999 was also when The Matrix came out. And I find that movie really interesting because we uh, we watched The Matrix again, the whole trilogy. And, um, you know, it's become a phrase that's widely used now, you know, 22 years after The Matrix came out, of somebody getting red-pilled. They take the red pill. That means they've woken up to the truth, the horrible truth. And as I'm watching The Matrix, I realize how much The Matrix is actually propaganda, again, promoting technology. Neo is a computer hacker. He's somebody who loves computers himself and has a lot of ability with them, along with the person he first meets and falls in love with, Trinity, along with all the people fighting against the machines. They might be fighting against the machines, but they're using the machines to fight against the machines. They are themselves technophiles, um, transhumanists. I mean, they are literally transhumanists. You can see the plugs in their bodies that that line between human and machine has been crossed. So these are transhumanists that plug into the machine, and you might say at least become part-time post-humanists. They get downloaded into the machine. Information is just something that gets downloaded to them like a computer program straight into their brain. I watched it from a transhumanist perspective this time and just saw it as complete propaganda for how cool it would be. Of course, there's that little underlying warning. Ooh, look what happened when we, you know, had the hubris to build self-aware machines and then we went to war with them because we didn't treat them well, by the way, um, if you watch the Animatrix. And now we have to live this life completely dependent on the machines. So... I think of that red pill waking up as an interesting metaphor now because just like Neo, just like when you're watching the movie, you're like, oh, Neo woke up to the truth. But as you're watching the movie, you're still getting sold the technology. 
you're still kind of thinking how cool it would be. Look, you just download a program. You have sex with whoever you want. You go wherever you want. The simulations are so good that it's damn near indistinguishable to tell a real steak from a fake steak. Um, there's very little reason other than just the ideal of not wanting to be a slave to not prefer the Matrix over the trashed real world they find themselves in. So I feel like we as the audience and we as people alive now in 2021, if you've taken the red pill, you've only woken up to the things they want you to wake up to. You're still asleep to the things they want you to still be asleep to, just like when you watch The Matrix and you're getting sold the propaganda still. What exactly are you waking up to when you watch The Matrix? The danger of machines? I don't know anybody who watched The Matrix and was inspired to move away from their use of machines. If anything, it just kind of inspires you to feel a little edgier and cool about it. Like, maybe you can be a rebel hacker. Yeah. And I feel like that's complete bullshit. You're playing right into their hands. 1999 was also the year of the pretentious asshole. And by that, I mean Bluetooth. Already you got these people walking around with cell phones. Do you remember your impression of people with cell phones back in the 90s? Uh, yeah, they were kind of pretentious assholes. Why? Well, I mean, everybody up until that point just used a phone, and if you were a drug dealer or you wanted to be cool, you had a pager, but you'd still have to find, like, a payphone to use. But now there's these people walking around that are so important that they can't wait to get to a landline. They have to have a phone right there. Yeah, that was kind of my impression, too. It always seemed like somebody was whipping out a cell phone you know, partly like wanting to be seen. Oh, somebody, oh, somebody needs to talk to me. Oh, hi. You know, I've got business so important that I have to interrupt my meal. Gosh, the demands on me. What would society do without me? I've got to have a cell phone, darling. That was kind of the whole energy of the cell phone to me. I freaking hated them. And now 1999, enter Bluetooth. <laughs> Now it's still not quite attached to your brain directly, but now you're wearing it on your ear. And if the damn thing fell off, I mean, why not get a piercing and just attach the damn thing more permanently? But Bluetooth. It got rid of, of those pesky cords. Well, cell phone already did. Yeah, but the Bluetooth, then you could be hands-free. Yeah, and that was one of the ways it got sold was a safety issue. If you needed to drive or something, you got Bluetooth. But again, why are you so goddamn busy and important that you can't just have a little time that you're incommunicado? What is so freaking awful and dangerous about this world that you always need to be plugged in and online? And the Bluetooth, let's keep in mind that even the cell phone, you know, sometimes it would ring, somebody would look at it, turn it off. Now you're starting to see people standing in line at the bank. And they're dealing with a teller, an actual human being right in front of them, and having a conversation with somebody who's not there. It's the rudest damn thing. I still think it's the rudest thing. I hate Bluetooth. And how many times have you seen somebody walking down the street that apparently is talking to themselves? And you're wondering, what the hell? Sometimes you think they're talking to you, and then you realize they got a Bluetooth on. You ever had that happen? Yeah. We're starting to have the technology lead us into psychotic behavior. Yeah, sure, they're actually talking to an actual disembodied voice. It's not just in their mind. But we're starting to mimic the behavior of people who have extreme mental illnesses. And I find this significant. When you go through the behavior, one thing I learned through tracking 
is you can tell, make some pretty good guesses by a first person's footprints of their mood, if they're depressed or if they're really upbeat. And my teacher, Tom Brown Jr., who taught me about tracking, said, if you're in a really sour mood, try this. Change your body posture. Stand up straight. Start looking up more. One of two things is going to happen. You won't be able to maintain it, and you'll go back to that droopy body posture, or you will, um, your mood will improve. It's not just your mental health or your behavior that dictates your actions. The reverse also has an effect. Your actions dictate your mental health and behavior. And I am convinced that things like Bluetooth, things that make us completely ignore the people around us, where we feel like the people that are talking to us that are nowhere in sight are more important than the people right in our lives right now sharing that space, sitting right beside us, it has a huge impact on our existence in the world and our mental health. And especially when we start apparently talking to ourselves, when we're having conversations right there, rudely ignoring the people in front of us. I hate Bluetooth. I remember when it came out. I hated it then and I hate it now. I was just going to add, too, that having a cell phone or Bluetooth and feeling like you always have to hurry up and answer the phone or hurry up and get back in touch with whomever, however, you know, texts or you know, whatever the method may be, it's not the natural speed of this planet and of our species. And you were talking about like mental illness and how I feel like the technology by design has made us have to, you know, quickly make decisions and, you know, even be distracted while we're doing really important things like driving or walking around traffic or something like that. And even though, you know, I know there's research in that book Blink where it was talking about like snap judgments. I'm talking about the entire speed. It's not just one judgment. It's constant. And I think it leads to burnout. And I don't think it improves our lives. And I don't think we can even see it at this point because we are, we continue to be like rapidly increasing the speed at which we have to have things done because of the technology, because the technology is so fast. And why do we need to flood ourselves with so many disembodied voices? More and more, I feel like there's an under understated narrative that physical presence is not important. And this directly feeds into the transhumanist agenda. The transhumanist agenda, trans, transition. We're transitioning humans. What are we transitioning into? Complete disembodied machines. Downloading our minds into machines. And what would be the resistance to this? It would be that we feel like there's some importance in residing in a physical body and physical interactions. So all these little things lead us somewhere. Each little step leads to the next step. A couple other things that I didn't bring us up to date with that are happening now. From the early 90s, we've got uh, the transgender movement that are turning what you could call a mental illness. People that feel like they're just deeply depressed. You know, it was only a couple decades before that that it was widely understood that there's some kind of mental illness. It doesn't mean that these people should be hated. It means they should be helped. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you should rush them into invasive surgery that makes them patients for the rest of their lives and is dangerous and has bad effects on their body. So this movement of 
treating the physical body like it's sort of this cumbersome, irrelevant thing that if you're just unhappy with it, maybe it's because there's something wrong with your body instead of some some way that you're relating to your body in the physical universe around you. Your meat the, suit. Your meat suit. This is all meant to be um, transcended. So I think this has a huge impact on what we are and who we are. And in 2000, you know, we've got uh, Y2K looming on the horizon. So this is, you know, the threat that the technology, the whole grid might go down, that somebody just crunched the wrong numbers and it's about to all fall apart. Um, Y2K, I still wonder what that was about. It definitely underscored our dependence on technology. Um, You know, people were scared because if the internet goes down, even by before 2000, we were so dependent on the internet that uh, we just, we thought it would be an absolute disaster to not have the internet. Um, And for... um, Okay, take two. Man, there were so many distractions. We're uh, going through a lot of chaos right now for (laughs) all kinds of reasons. So we're going to try this again. We're going to pick up where we left off yesterday, which was 2000. You got any thoughts as we get started again, Teresa? No. (laughs) Well, that's a fortuitous start. (laughs) Okay, so we were talking about Y2K and um, some thoughts I had about Y2K. I remember everybody was stocking up, you know. And uh, getting ready for what if the grid goes down? And that was, I didn't, I didn't really tune into it at the time, but hearing stories about it now in hindsight, a lot of people were terrified, um, which underscored our actual dependence on this technology. But I also wonder how much propaganda. I always wonder now if there's propaganda behind something. I look for what might be pushing this narrative, and uh, you know, I ask myself. What could be a possible ulterior motive for uh, getting everybody afraid of Y2K? And I wonder if maybe the fear like, could kind of draw us more into the technology. Do you know what I mean? Well, green technology, for sure. Like if your electrical stuff um, can't operate, but maybe like getting solar energy. I know it's the computer stuff that wasn't working for Y2K. But if the grid went down, maybe like solar would be more beneficial to people. Yeah, I mean, I see Y2K as not being a green energy versus, like, other kind of energy. It was more like, because if we were using, we all transferred over to green energy, for instance, we'd still want to be connected to the Internet, and the same problem would still have arisen. Yeah. I'm not sure it would have really freed anybody, except maybe some guy with a couple solar panels that at least can turn on his lights. But it would have hurt everybody, and I feel like maybe it sort of underscores, like, if you take something away from somebody they realize how much they want it and then the relief floods in when you give it back oh i see what you're saying it's kind of like yesterday you know the abusers technique let's really create a problem that wasn't there before and then let's come in with the solution let's come in as the savior the white knight on the horse and um people will so quickly forget that you caused the problem because you come (laughs) in with the solution so I don't know. I don't know. That's just some thoughts I had about Y2K. But I remember I was really excited, you know. I remember I got up early that morning that it was supposed to go down. And, you know, the news was covering it like, oh, Australia, you know, it's the day of the new year. Nothing has happened and whatever. You know, the countries that were 
hitting that that time mark first, kind of wrapping around the globe. They were really drumming it up, a media sensation with it. All the programmers were the saviors because somehow they saved us from this complete and utter chaos that our lives would have been in. Now, do you remember that specifically, that the programmer saved us? I don't remember whether that was the narrative or whether it was just never well, the, really a danger. There was like a Y2K fix for the, the internal clocks of the computer. Cause oh, the, there was? Somebody actually like went in and did something different to save us from a real problem? I was never sure whether the problem well, was real in the first place. Yeah that's, yeah, that's debatable. I don't know if there ever was a problem. I don't think we'll really... I mean, unless there's something out there but now. But you heard a narrative, like, from the media that there actually was a problem that, in fact, got fixed by computer people. Right. Like, they preemptively had this Y2K fix so that the computer clocks wouldn't think it was 1900 again. Yeah. And I remember being really disappointed. Even back then, I was really uh, disgusted with technology and nothing happened. And so we go about our business once again. And uh, 2000 is also the year that FM 2030 uh, a big transhumanist professor and a champion of transhumanist ideas um, enters cryonic suspension, which means he died and got frozen. And he's awaiting um, the time when he can be reanimated, when he can cheat death, which he believes is going to be around 2030, in nine short years from now. Um, and in 2001, Teresa, you uh, made a note about Circuit City. And, uh, you know, how customers were entering the world of the future then. Do you want to share that? Yeah, Circuit City is a now defunct, uh, bankrupt electronics store that I used to work at. And, uh, you know, they used to sell computers and TVs and all stuff for the house. Um, I remember listening to upper management. You know, they'd come to our store from the corporate headquarters and they'd tell us about the, the wave of the future. And... Part of what I remember is customers would come in, and remember, this is in 2000, 2001. They would come into the store, they would select what they want, and they would simply walk out. Because they would have on their body a, a code of some sort that when they walked out the door, it would know who walked out the door it would know the UPC code of whatever they left with from the store, and it would just simply charge their credit card account. So you wouldn't have to interact with anybody if you didn't want to, because that was the wave of the future. It was just like uh, anonymous, you know, consumers that were just they could they could have all the autonomy. They can get whatever they want. They're never questioned or stopped. It's it's the wave of the future, and that hasn't happened yet. Although, um, hopefully, I'll be able to bring you some information about people that do have all sorts of things implanted in their bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and another, that's already happened. And an, Yeah, it's, uh, we're about to talk about that actually next year from 2001. Um, another really significant thing that happened in 2001 that uh, changes our relationship with the computer, with the machine, is the Patriot Act. Um, we're not going to talk at length about 9-11, the World Trade Centers, but... Whether you believe it was a false flag, whether it was an event caused by our government, allowed by our government, or that our government just um, failed to protect us against, it doesn't really matter 
because what's widely known is that there are ideas that are kind of put up on the shelf until the opportunity arises, whether the government creates the opportunity or takes advantage of the opportunity. Oh, yeah. So right after 9-11, once again, we see a pattern. An event happens, and everyone, through their fear, allows things to be done that just months before, maybe days before, they would have said absolutely not. We don't accept this. There'd be riots in the streets. But now that everybody's scared, it's changed from your uh, conversation about your rights, your freedom, your liberties, your your right to live your life as you want to and not have the government tell you what to do, to, oh my God, our safety has been compromised. We're all scared shitless. We're running around like Chicken Little. And now the government, please save us. Please save us. Whatever you want. If you got to go through my emails, God, yeah, I don't care. I'll trade my privacy if you can find that one terrorist down the road. Just find him. Stop him. Please, please. And So I w- here comes the Patriot Act. Again, the knight on the white horse. And I would also say that some of that is kind of, um, what's the word? Like you're, you're just resigned to it. You know, it's like, well, what did you expect? Um, everything still being fairly new online. And yet, even then in 2001, I remember talk about, you know, well, you know, if your emails have to be looked at, I mean, they are online, you know, they are going through a company and it wasn't that people were necessarily okay with it. There were there, it was that too, but the other people, myself included was kind of like, well, I mean, what did you expect? Yeah, I didn't really. I wasn't terribly upset about this as a problem at the time because I I thought similarly. I was like, you know, I just kind of assumed that anything I write online, you know, is kind of public domain. People are going to look into it. I'm using their toys, so if they're spying on what I do, I mean, what are they going to, like, I sell a little bit of weed and they're going to, the FBI is going to track me down? I didn't think so. I didn't see a big danger. But now, 20 years later, I'm around a generation of people that doesn't remember a time that technology wasn't just blatantly outright. To me, this isn't the beginning of them uh, keeping track of us through our technology. As we know, the FBI was tapping phones for a long time, back in the 60s, 50s, maybe even earlier. Um, Government surveillance wasn't a new thing, but it was secret. It was something that they didn't have the balls to come right out and say, yeah, yeah, we're doing that. Suck it. That's what the Patriot Act is that I understand it now, is the Patriot Act set a precedent that, yes, for your own safety, you don't have privacy. You don't even have the illusion of privacy. We have set a precedent that we can monitor what you say, what you think, for everyone's safety. Now, how much safer did the world get after that? Does it ever get safer? Does it work? Is it about safety or is it about control? So the Patriot Act raises a lot of questions, and it set a precedent that now for the next 20 years up till now, and we can imagine for the next 20 years from now, we don't expect to have privacy in our technology. There's no illusion of privacy. Exactly. Yeah, it's generation now upon generation that accepts the cookies when you go to a website that allows the device to record your location and whatever other information that it wants without even batting an eye. I mean, I've seen this in a friend of mine who's 12 years younger than me, showing me how to log on to this certain website or use this certain tool online. And she's like, oh, just click accept. Oh, just, you know, allow it. Yeah. Just click okay. 
Yeah, there's that South Park episode satirizing that where uh, I think Kyle clicks like one of those quick accept things and like I forget <laughs> what he signs up for, but it's something really crazy, you know, and they're kind of pointing out the hilarity of like nobody reads that crap. We all know that nobody reads that crap. Um, and it just normalizes it. I guess that's yeah. the thing. It normalizes something and it changes the whole way we exist in our culture, how we relate to not just the machines, but the government that is providing and controlling the machines. So there used to be in the 90s kind of this feeling of like, ooh, the Internet's kind of an anarchist domain. You know, like I heard people say that, like, whoa, they get the computers and the Internet are very anarchist, like outlaw. You can do whatever you want to. There's like, you know, you can make all these deals on the Internet. The government doesn't control it. Well, 2001, that changed. And the next year, 2002, meet Kevin Warwick. He became one of the world's first cybernetic organisms. One of the things I really hope that I can convey here is after 2000, this transhumanist agenda picks up big time. It starts reaching places that are... Um, God, what would I say? Much more extreme than the cell phone, than uh, the internet. It's where all these ideas that kind of they're paving the way to lead us through the 80s, the 90s, this is where the plans start actually taking effect, I feel like. And uh, Kevin Warwick is a good example. Like I said, he became one of the world's first cybernetic organisms. An array of electrodes were implanted in his arm and plugged into his nervous system so he could use his mind to control another cybernetic arm a continent away. Later that same year, in 2002, his wife also got cybernetic implants, making them the first humans to have direct nervous system-to-nervous system communication with each other. If this sounds like the Borg, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, because another word for cybernetic organism is cyborg, right? Yeah. And now he's a professor nicknamed Captain Cyborg. Um... And don't let that sneak past you. A professor. This is when the education really starts embracing um, cybernetic implants, really starts pushing it on people. These people that were getting taught by Kevin Warwick, he's a professor in college. About how old are you in college? 18? Yeah, anywhere from 18, 21, sometimes older. 18, add another 19 years, what are we looking at, like 30s? Mm-hmm. These are people who are now leading the world that started going through this education system that has always led us into a very uh, obedient, kind of uh, justifying the government, um, not really leading us to ask the questions we should be asking. And now they're teaching us this new reliance on technology, how cool it is, how maybe even necessary it is to get these cybernetic implants where we communicate directly nervous system to nervous system with each other. Um, Captain Cyborg, Kevin Warwick, believes, and we can assume he teaches, that communication via speech is ridiculously primitive. Having to talk, that's so outdated. It's so last year. Um, and he also teaches that living in three dimensions is also outdated and primitive. What he's talking about is posthumanism. Living in three dimensions is our reality. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not like something that is just a given that we need to transcend. It's the reality. It's the the universe we exist in. And remember, these super nerds are not 
fully living in this reality because of whatever harms, hurts, and, you know, mental things that have gone on in their life. So they've been sheltered from actual reality. Actual reality to them is no good. That's why they have to create the virtual reality. And how are you ever going to be happy if reality itself has failed you? Um, He starts teaching, as well as many other people around this time, that technology can and should be used to upgrade ourselves. Uh, A word neurohacking begins to appear in our language, and this is repair or improvement of biology. Another invention that came along, and I'm not sure when, was the electroencephalogram, the EEG headset, called NeuroSky. NeuroSky comes with an app store full of possibilities, such as MindWriter, where you don't have to even bother, you know, we were just getting past writing with pencil and pen and typewriter, you know, getting used to these laptops and everything to write. You don't even have to do that anymore. You can write with your mind. So we can all be the great American author, which pretty much, you know, to me, when you remove the specialness of something, the talent, the the hard, long, the long, hard road that got you there, it becomes nothing. It becomes drivel. So when everybody can just write with their mind, I don't know what the, I guess we're still waiting to see what the implications of this technology is. Yeah, remember that South Park episode where Cartman and Alec Baldwin are the only two on this new um, social media platform called Shitter? Yeah. And, <laughs> and they just, instead of having to type out on Twitter, um, they just think a thought and it gets uploaded to the internet. Yeah, I guess the NeuroSky pretty much is shitter. <laughs> and another app that you can buy is EEG Meditation, which they describe as dumbbells for the development of your mind. So don't bother sitting on that damn cushion anymore. You can just buy an app and start having these experiences that we used to try to reach through meditation, through cultivating our mind. It's all about shortcuts. It's all about we don't need to do the slow path anymore because most of us couldn't reach the goal anyway. How many people became Buddha? Now, if you just pay the right people and buy the right product, oh, we're all Buddha. How fucking likely do you think that is? And we were just watching Rise of the Planet of the Apes part of it last night because I fell asleep. Um, Of course, it's fiction, but they are, I mean, in that movie as well as in real life, they are working on things to help repair the neurons in the brains of people who have, whether it's um, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or just senility from old age, because of course old age is something that we need to cure now. And of course, you know, in that movie there are um, side effects, <laughs> but this this stuff is happening in real life as well. And we just, it amazes me from all the movies that we've mentioned in this episode and the previous ones that have to do with transhumanism. Like, we never seem to learn. Yeah, and look closer at so many of these problems. You know, many of these problems have increased or were absent altogether in a more uh, primitive, what's called a primitive culture, a little piece of propaganda there. Um, I think one of the fundamental questions is, do you believe this time period is like a tunnel, that the way out of it is to go deeper into it, or is it more like a hole? That by going deeper into it, we're just going deeper into it. <laughs> I believe it's more like a hole. I believe it's a, a fantastic leap of faith, a religious belief that masquerades as science, to believe it's like a tunnel. We have no evidence, no reason to think there's a light at the end of this path we're traveling. 
it keeps getting darker and darker. Things like Alzheimer's disease. Oh, it sounds fantastic. I don't want any of my relatives to have Alzheimer's disease. A cure that invades our body with new technology? Why wouldn't you want it? But people fail to look at how often did people in primitive cultures have things like Alzheimer's. You might say, and I've heard the argument, well, they had a lot of other things, you know, and I'm not saying they were free of diseases or ailments, but they had made peace with them. They'd made peace with their lives, with their deaths. We are scared shitless and getting more frightened all the time. Look at where we're at right now in 2021. My God, people are losing their minds, frothing with fear, eating each other alive, hating their neighbors, their own family members, driven by fear. We're going deeper and deeper into this tunnel, and I can't understand why anybody thinks the way to get through the tunnel is to keep going on this path. I don't see any light up ahead. Nothing tells me there's light up ahead. I think we're burying ourselves deeper in the ground. Well, of course. I mean, every time there's a technology, it seems to knock something out of balance, and then we need another technology from our scientists to bring it back into balance, which then creates another imbalance because we don't know stuff. And researchers like Yusuf Eziat, probably got that name completely wrong, at Swarthmore University have improved human memory by using, quote, external neural stimulation. And again, you know, I think about improving memory. Why do we need our memories improved? Have they gotten worse? Well, yeah, from the technology. From the technology, even including (laughs) literacy. Right. You know, as we talked about in former episodes, when you're part of an oral culture, you are invested in remembering things. So one of the fears that Plato mentioned in one of his books, um, in one of the stories he shared, was when people start writing, they rely on a type of technology to start doing something for them. But every time we find some way to make something supposedly easier, that thing that we used to be good at atrophies. And we're always, it gets sold to us like, but now you've got more time to do What are we doing with all this extra time? I mean, we're pretty much living in a science fiction story at this point. Technology that nobody fully understands. We're tapping into things that 100 years ago were thought to be the domain of gods. And what are we doing with all this fantastic... I mean, are you looking around and just seeing happy, healthy people like, like... they're in utopia? No, you have... I'm not. I'm seeing a bunch of pimply-faced, overweight geeks that are addicted to violent computer games and internet porn, and I'm seeing people that are just scared out of their minds reaching for the latest technology to hopefully protect, to hopefully protect them from whatever the technology did to them last year. Yeah, exactly. That consumerism, because if you have extra time, you got to fill it with something. So if you can buy stuff or at least go shopping and look at stuff, I mean, my mom's visiting us and um, we're at the campsite that we often come to or the the area that we often come to to camp in the summer. And um, it's kind of driving her crazy, you know, and I mean, it can drive someone crazy, even us. Um, If you don't have distractions. Yeah, and as we've talked about, like, your mom's struggling with some things. Like, she's not really the kind of person to get in a wild river. She's convinced that, uh, and she is kind of accident-prone, so I'm not saying she wouldn't get sick. What is it she's scared of in the river? Giardia. Giardia. And Teresa and I aren't scared of that. We've had years of experience to show us that that danger that may in fact be real is greatly overblown. But Teresa's mom is the kind of person that, 
tends to run into those things, you know, however you explain that. She would be the person to actually get Giardia. So without <laughs> things like that, I don't know how content I could be if I wasn't jumping in that wild river, that baptismal. It makes sense of everything. So you take those few things away, and yeah, it is just kind of sitting here losing your mind, being bored. Right. And, and, you know, being in a house, again, you've got your dishwasher, you've got your um, washing machine and dryer, you've got a microwave. And out here, you know, we got to do everything, you know, basically by hand, unless we use a shortcut like a Coleman stove. And my mom's just marveling at how long it might take to stoke the fire up in the morning or to, you know, wash and dry our clothes or whatever we might do. But I'm, I'm saying to myself, well, what else do you do with the time? I mean, sure, I could be sitting reading a book, but that's not really what people are necessarily doing. And it's not even that. I was actually having this conversation with your mom yesterday where she was talking about how long it took. I think it was like she was talking about her coffee maker, how much she appreciates that over like the fire, which was taken, you know, sometimes takes a long time. Sometimes it goes pretty quick. But I was saying I think it's a re-channeling of your time. It's how you want to spend your time. Like, that coffee maker plugged into that wall with the electricity doesn't come for free. So you have to spend your time, your effort, your work at some kind of job. Or somebody more and more is becoming arbitrary. Yeah, in your mom's case, she's older and, you know, it's however, you know, we come by our money. Somebody, you know, worked at that job. So they devoted their life to usually some arbitrary job that's removed from the actual activity, say, making the fire to heat up your coffee. I would rather use that time to directly be involved as much as I can with my food, with my coffee, which I know there's an argument about where the hell the coffee beans came from, (laughs) but as close as I can get to that direct involvement. So it's not even freeing up more time. It's just a difference in how you spend your time. I prefer the direct involvement. I think it's healthier for you. It makes you saner. And more and more, as I notice how people act around me that are involved in our civilization, I'm not impressed with the sanity. They seem to be losing their minds. I know I'm saying that over and over, but my God, people are just really going nuts. To close out 2002, uh, this is when Roomba began to enter our homes. This little robot that was going to clean our houses for us. (laughs) Fail. Um, Teresa and I both have been house cleaners at one time, and I can't tell you how many dusty old Roombas I've seen under the bed that now they've hired uh, house cleaners to come in and clean their house because the damn things didn't work. I watched one. I watched a Roomba, like, sluggishly go underneath a bed and just, like, die. Like, it was defeated because the house was so filthy. (laughs) (laughs) It just wanted to hide from it, which is kind of funny. 2002 was also the year that Elon Musk, who... I believe he considers himself a transhumanist libertarian. I don't know about libertarian, but definitely transhumanist. Definitely transhumanist. Um, He funds his private space exploration company, SpaceX, 2002. Two years later, in 2004, a book was written by bioethicist James Hughes named Citizen Cyborg. Among the things that he discusses in this book, he argues that techno-progressives or democratic transhumanists must implement public policies such as universal health care vouchers that covers human enhancement technologies in order to deal with technological haves and have-nots. <laughs> Again, you know, I'm, I see a bridge here between the growing energy behind the transgender movement and this sentiment. For one thing, 
big surprise, the Democratic transhumanists, the Democratic Party, the, the party that prides themselves on progressivism. Uh, the Green Party is kind of a peripheral of the Democratic Party. More technology, better technology, let's push harder. Our salvation is in the very thing that got us here, technology. This idea is embraced by the Democrats, who also at the same time on a parallel path, you know, he says... We need health care vouchers, universal health care vouchers that cover human enhancement technologies. Human enhancement technologies. Something else that fits under that umbrella that's getting a lot of attention back then and now is transgender. People who have the horrible misfortune of being born in the wrong bodies and better technology can fix this for them. An outrageous idea. This took a lot of uh, time and effort and salesmanship to get a whole culture to accept that we need surgery to fix someone who was born in the wrong body. This is a human enhancement technology, and we want it to be better. Now we have a new demand that goes right to the heart of our human experience to fix us. Tell me that this isn't paving the way for people who would readily, excitedly gobble up, let's say, nanotechnology that can actually go in your cells and change you into an actual woman if you're born a man and want to be a woman. Oh, my God. Post-genderism. Tell me what group of people in our culture would be the first people in line to back this. Um, and the technological haves and have-nots, as we've discussed ever since the Industrial Revolution, technology has been one of the dark sides of technology is the people who exploit it get inordinately powerful and wealthy and rich, and the people who don't embrace it or have access to it start getting left behind. It has been one of the chief reasons, one of the chief mechanisms for creating a huge gap between the people that insanely want and accept way too much. What the fuck do you need way too much for? That itself is an insanity, and the people that those empires built on their backs that have way too little. They weren't poor before with next to nothing because that's just the way life was. It brought people together. You sat around people in your, with the people of your tribe, processed the meat, processed the acorns. They didn't feel poor. It was just life. But now they're being exploited. Those avenues of just living a free human life are getting cut off, are getting destroyed. And there's nothing left but to wish that you were that person that had too much, to want to participate in the madness, not to escape from it. And to be clear, um, you know, you mentioned progressive or democratic transhumanist, libertarian transhumanist. Transhumanists come from all different political backgrounds and even non-political backgrounds because there's such a thing as an anarcho-transhumanist. Um, so I just wanted to make that clear that... That's true, we're going to, you know, talk a little bit about that it's not just Democratic, but have you heard of a transhumanist Republican? Yes. You have? Yeah, I don't have the names down, but I have go been going through that list of transhumanists that's on Wikipedia, and there are Republican. In fact, I think Peter Thiel is Republican. Well, my impression is it is more something embraced by the Democratic Party. Is that your impression, or would you counter that? I would probably counter that because I think the transhumanist agenda is bigger than political parties. Hmm. And especially considering that it's all around the world. It's not just in the United States either. I do. I, I do. I do. I do agree. It's a 
bigger than the political parties. I guess one of the things I think of is, you know, I remember the Simpsons episode where they were satirizing, satirizing the Democrats and the Republicans, and they were, you know, really emphasizing how the Democrats like new things. They tend to be more the neophiles, like progressive, let's change things, whereas the conservatives are considered the stodgy old white men who want things to be like yesteryear. So, but, yeah, we'll leave you that. Also, yeah, I mean, I... I will be happy to do some more research um, when I can. But, yeah, there are definitely business people who are Republicans who are also, like, throwing hundreds of millions of dollars into transhumanist agenda thingy-doos. And I do agree with you that uh, I believe the transhumanist umbrella, one of the things that uh, blows my mind the most about this is I feel like it's one of the largest umbrellas I've studied that— embraces, you know, the whole political dichotomy. Even a lot of the anarchists, as you said, and libertarians who seem to want freedom, when you look at the people involved in this, you see a lot of technologists. Freedom to do what (laughs) is the question that people should be uh, delving into deeper. Um, That same year, in 2004, as uh, James Hughes and Citizen Cyborg is raising these questions about universal health care to cover human enhancement technologies, the Gender Recognition Act passes in the UK. Now, can you explain to the best of your ability what that is? Because I remember I was a little confused and you helped elucidate it for me. We were uh, we were reading, I guess, comparisons between the Equality Act of 2010 in the UK and the Gender Recognition Act. So I think it, the Gender Recognition Act specifically is protecting those of whatever gender they're not going to discriminate against, including if you're transgender, non-binary, this, that, or the other. Mm-hmm. And 2004 was apparently a big year for the transhumanists because we also have uh, Neil Harbison, who, I, who calls himself a transhumanist cyborg artist. And he gets this antenna permanently implanted in his skull, which allows him to see colors beyond human perception, such as infrareds and ultraviolets. Um, and he can receive phone calls, music, videos or images translated into audible vibrations and data from satellites. He is the first cyborg recognized by a government. And he considers himself a trans-species activist. What's trans-species? Now keep in mind, we're still at 2004. This is the same year that... James Hughes is asking questions about universal health care um, enha- for enha- enhancement technologies. The same year that the UK passes the Gender Recognition Act for people who want human enhancement technologies. Here's another bridge between those two things. Um, these are perfectly healthy people that have decided that they are not healthy. For whatever reason that's not physically apparent, they have working bodies, and now they want technology, they want surgery, they want further technology to fix something that they have to convince other people that is broken. And Neil Harbison now is a, at the same time, the very same time, he's an activist for trans species. These are people with non-human identities. <laughs> right. These are people that don't just, I don't identify as a man, I identify as a woman. These are people who say, I don't identify as a human. This is all interrelated, because if you don't identify as a human, what are you? 
You are a transhuman. You're a transitioning human into what? Whatever that next thing is, is by definition, I would say, post-human. So, trans species, I feel like that's a uh, term that kind of got like, oh, we'll handle that later, but it's all interconnected. We're creating a precedent for a person to identify with whatever they want instead of what they are. <laughs> now they might get to say who gets to say what they are. It's a good question. But when we have to rely on technology, ever-increasing technology and big pharma to help fuel these illusions that we are something else, again, you can say it's just my opinion, but I see a lot, a, a, a portal into darkness, a lot of bad things coming of it, of it. Because every time we have new technology, bad things come from it. Were you going to say something? Oh, I, I had some passing thoughts, but I'm not sure if um, I'm ready to collect them just yet. Mm-hmm. And we talked about, uh, you know, the politics of transhumanism. There are libertarian transhumanists like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, who indeed is a libertarian transhumanist. Um, and yeah, so I begin to ask, what is this about? You know, like, might libertarians, by deregulating technologists, be pushing pro-transhumanist agendas? We've listened to a lot of libertarian stuff. And, uh, you know, one of... Among you, you don't have to listen long before you uh, hear people who are <coughs> also identify themselves as technologists, people who want to push technology as far as it'll go. Now they never really emphasize that when they're describing this utopian world that's uh, more libertarian or anarcho-capitalist. There's never a bad word against technology. There's never even a warning about the dangers of technology. All they focus on is freedom. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Sounds good. Freedom. But when you think about what a technologist, a transhumanist, who's already cloning things, uh, who's already developing tiny little machines that can infiltrate our bodies and our water supply, who's already um, using technology to convince children that there's something wrong with them that needs to be fixed through drugs and surgery... What will unregulated, I mean, it's already pushing forward. But when you take even that tiny leash off of it, what the hell do they want to do? What do you think, Teresa? We've talked a lot about this. You remember any of the stuff that you uh, talked about? You were actually, when we were doing the, uh, the podcast about, what was the book? Oh, Government. Biggest Scam in History. You Government. were one of the critics for this very reason. What's the danger you see in this of, uh, you know, I was actually taking the, the devil's advocacy, advocacy stance of, oh, well, freedom could mean this, and the way to stop it isn't necessarily to have the government step in, and I still agree with that. But what's the danger you see in this? I mean, I guess the people that are, they're talking about this free society, um, <laughs> I don't know. It just doesn't seem like everyone's going to be able to have it their way. I just, I think that's, I, I don't think that's realistic, especially when you have technology that's going to require all the things that are going on now. What if I want to live in a world where I don't have that stuff? I can't escape it. It's everywhere. I mean, there's mining operations, there's 
computer stuff. There's the economy moving to more digital Bitcoin type things. I mean, I just don't think there's a place for everyone. And the more and more we go into this free society, I think it's going to keep pushing the edges of humans uh, going more and more into that post-human state. Yeah, I think you nailed it, at least by the way I look at it. Um, the libertarians describe a world and the anarcho-primitivist of freedom. If you don't want to use this technology, you don't have to. There's other people who are technologists who, like I said, are some primary backers behind this push. Let's get the government out of our business so we can push this technology as fast and hard as we want. Um, but like Ted Kaczynski says, and this is Ted Kaczynski, when a new item of technology is introduced as an option that an individual can accept or not as he chooses, it doesn't necessarily remain optional. Hmm. In many cases, the new technology changes society in such a way that people eventually find themselves forced to use it. Technology is not this neutral let live and let live kind of thing. I experienced it myself. I, I resisted the cell phone. I resisted the, the computer. And I saw the world change around me where more and more things that I could do before were not available to me. We're beginning to not get the funding, become rarer and rarer, and where you could find those things, um, they weren't taken care of. They didn't get the same attention. It got so hard to do anything without a computer by the time my ex-girlfriend finally gave me her computer and taught me how to use it because she went to Japan. And the only reason I was going to use this computer was to communicate with her so I could receive an email and communicate with her. Um, that would be so much easier because she's in Japan. It was our one avenue of communication. That's how it finally got sold to me. And, of course, here I am now making a podcast, uh, checking <laughs> Facebook. I knew, I knew, I knew it was opening a door to the devil. I knew it was like a little enticement, like, oh, come in, it's just a choice. It's, you can give it up whenever you're ready, step right out. I had seen so many people get addicted to it at that point that could not do without their cell phone that I knew the danger, but I still walked in. And that's when you got your Facebook profile? Uh, shortly after, yeah, she helped me set up my Facebook profile. Even, like, went and found me Facebook friends, and I remember sitting there at the computer thinking, what the hell do I need Facebook friends for? Again, South Park episode, right? And now I've chased most of them <laughs> off anyway. So. <laughs> Something I'm not sure that you have on your list, but we mentioned the other day was just, when the hell did TVs get to be put everywhere? Mm -hmm. Whether it's in a fast food restaurant in the corner, we were talking about, you know, bars that have not just a TV to watch sports, but a TV at your table. And even at gas pumps. Remember how you would just, like, go and pump gas? Now there's a TV telling you to, you know, get alcohol <laughs> while you're, you know, putting gas in your car to drive. Um, or buy lottery tickets. Or here's a heart-healthy recipe. When did that happen? I'm not sure if it was 2004, but it seems to have just crept in slowly, slowly. More and more screens. Yeah, it's, uh, I remember how strange that was the first time I walked into a restaurant and there were TVs playing. And um, I think it was yesterday that's going to be part of this same episode that we mentioned the CIA, the retired CIA guy. Oh, yeah. That all he would say is never watch television. Why do we need a television screen in front of us everywhere we go? And what does that do to us? 
even the people like us, you know, that talk about, oh, it's probably not good for us or whatever, we resign ourselves. It's hard to escape from it. It's like Ted Kaczynski was saying. At first, it's a choice, but then society changes around you that unless you're completely off-grid, way out in the middle of the bush, which is really hard right now, it's not impossible. Some people say it's impossible. I don't agree with that. I think that's a, kind of a defeatist way of thinking. But it is freaking hard. Yeah. I mean, we hear stories like, uh, shit, I can't remember his name, maybe Ishi. Um, but there are stories of native people, indigenous people who grew up living hunter-gatherer lifestyles. And when they lost their tribe, they gave up. They felt like they couldn't do it. And this was like a hundred or more years ago. Mm. How much harder is it for us who didn't grow up learning how to do that stuff without a tribe to go into a land that has had a hundred more years to be damaged by things uh, exacerbated by technology. Right to go have that freedom. So unless you can do that, which all the odds are against you, you're stuck pumping gas in your car with a screen in front of you. <laughs> you're stuck occasionally going into some kind of store that more and more have are having screens in front of you. Oh, yeah. There's one grocery store that has little TVs playing at the end of the aisles. They're like, they call them end caps and displays on the aisle. And there's a TV there. And it's like a cacophony of sounds because there's somebody talking on the TV, there's people talking in the store, there's often, you know, some message playing on the intercom, and you wonder why people have all these, you know, schizophrenic mental illnesses where they're like, they or ADHD, you know, they can't slow their brain down. It's because there's so many messages being pumped into us. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we stop enough and realize exactly how saturated we are with technology. I know people that I see on Facebook that just crank out posts that are anti-civilization. And I just, more and more, I shake my head when I see this stuff. I'm like, I don't think you're taking a step back and seeing, like, even in the anti-civilization posts, you're playing their game. There's nothing <laughs> left but their game. You can't even, you, you get to feel like you're encouraging people to back out of it when you yourself can't even take steps to back out of it. And I'm definitely in this boat. We are saturated in it. If, if we're making this little metaphor of a fish can't see the water, if we're that fish, the water is technology. <clears throat> now, many transhumanists argue for the trickle-down theory as far as the, uh, the problem that was raised in Citizen Cyborg for the haves and the have-nots, that growing discrepancy. And they say that new technologies will work kind of like the laptops and the smartphones did, where certain people that have more money get it first, but then they'll be like kind of secondhand used stuff where it'll trickle down to everybody. And indeed, we've seen that happen. Even homeless people have smartphones now. Even us living out of our van, we've got laptops and an iPad. Um, and they say the enhancements will be the same way. Yeah, it won't be exactly equal at first. They'll be the first people that'll get it, and they probably won't be the lower class. But just wait. It'll quickly trickle down. And, and again, whether... I go back to that Kaczynski quote that maybe the lower class doesn't want the fucking technology but they're going to be compelled to have to use it. That's exactly where I was going to go because, you know, so what? There's always going to be rich people that want to have thrilling experiences. You know, maybe they get their brain hooked up to their computer and they can, like, play video games or whatever the hell. But, and that's actually happening now. Yeah. Um, but I don't want that. But eventually, as that technology trickles down, it becomes more and more ubiquitous 
and you become more and more of a relic if you don't join in. Look at QR codes during this pandemic for the menus at restaurants. Oh, just, you know, scan it with your phone. Um, no. <laughs> I don't think I want to go to establishments if they don't have an option where I can just, you know, order food and not have to use my app on my phone, which, by the way, I don't have. Um, I just end up taking a picture of this stupid black and white square, and then I can't see the menu anyway. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm just getting at the same thing as you. I feel like I have less and less of a choice because it because the technology is more and more ubiquitous over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, God, my brain just went blank. I was going to say something to that. Well, um, that division, you know, that you're describing between the haves and the have-nots and the people who don't necessarily want it, one of the dangers, you know, as usual, we uh, tend to focus first on the economics. Like, how can we make it economically equal? And that's a piece of propaganda right there. We yeah. don't even entertain the idea of, we don't even address the possibility <laughs> that people won't want it. The problem or don't is how it. do we get it to these people? Right. And so just in the way we address the problem, present the problem, we're kind of, it's like a commercial. It's a piece of propaganda. We know you want it. And we're in your corner. We're trying to figure out how to get it to you. Well, right, and there's also a lot of money poured in to reach people. So whether it's through their smartphone or the TV at the gas pump, there's a lot of advertising money. How do we further, you know, invade your brain? And so whatever technology is next, whether it's a a chip implanted in you so you could easily pay for things or, you know, some sort of, I don't know. I don't know. There's just all sorts of things that are popping out of the scientific world. Um, enhancements so you can, you know, do things easier. When is it going to be the case where your, you know, your weather channel that you just automatically get downloaded into your brain comes with commercials? And again, we got to keep returning to those simple basic questions. Does any of this make us happy? We're talking about power. You supposedly are going to have more power if you can just get the weather downloaded right into your mind. You have more power over planning your day. But do you have more connection? Do you have more happiness? What the hell is going to be invented that's, that replaces me jumping in this wild river here and the baptism I feel? I've seen the people that more embrace the technology, and they're less and less likely to jump into that river. Because when they look at that river, they, say, they, they see Giardia. <laughs> they have no idea about the spiritual power of that river. Technology can't bring it to them. It's not that you're transcending reality. It's that you don't even fucking know what reality is. Nobody who really has embraced reality and is on that path wants virtual reality. I'll tell you that because virtual reality is a simulation. It's secondhand. It's less reality. It's a copy of reality. The only people that would be attracted to are people who somehow have been cut off from the full I hate to say technicolor because it sounds like TV, but the full, vivid life, living reality. People that live in fear. People who live in fear. Fear is such a good manipulation tool. And that division between transhumanist and the unenhanced, whether they just can't afford it yet or whether they've decided they don't want it, one of the dangers that's discussed is that division could grow. The transhumans will become physically and cognitively superior through technological enhancements. They will live longer, they will be stronger, 
They will be probably better looking. They can be whatever gender they decide to be. They will have transcended this human experience, and they will be smarter. They'll have some of these uh, apps that we're talking about, so their memory will be better. And as it grows, they could become a separate species. There's serious discussions between scientists that are working on this stuff that there could become a time that we're separate species that cannot interbreed with each other. Again, transgender leads this charge with people, with men, who have decided they are entitled to have things nature didn't intend for them. That is their right. How dare you step on my civil rights and tell me I can't have a baby? Somebody needs to be inventing some way that I can carry a baby to term because just the fact of saying pregnant woman is considered hate speech. How dare you say that? Nature has fucked me over. I'm a victim. Can't you see that? And so this way of thinking, which I'm still just baffled that in such a short time an entire fucking global culture has accepted that this is makes sense, <laughs> that a man is entitled to have a baby, this pushes this way of thinking. Because how the hell are we going to do this except through things like cloning? Yeah. Through more technology. And it's definitely not good enough now. And now the next argument is going to be, well, we've got technology that can kind of do it, but it's dangerous. You don't want people to be in danger, do you? What kind of sick motherfucker are you? You don't care about these people? They're human beings. Don't you realize that? So, of course, we need to get behind better technology. They've got us in a trap in just the way they formulate the argument. Just like we were talking about, let's not even mention some people might not want more technology. The argument should be, how do we get technology to these poor, stupid Trump supporters? They don't even know what they need yet. We need to force them to come aboard because obviously this is the right way to go. And let's not have a conversation about whether we need electricity. Has it made us happier? Has technology ever served us? Is it making the world better? Do we have less suicide rates? Do we have less depression, less anxiety? That's silly. Let's not talk about that shit. So that was all 2004. Two years after that, in 2006, Peter Thiel, who we just mentioned as a transhumanist libertarian, he donates $100,000 to the Machine Intelligence Research Institute and joins its board to push the machine further, faster, smarter. Thiel also pledges $3.5 million to the Methuselah Mouse Prize Foundation, which is trying as hard as they can to reach that goal set by FM 2030 to find a cure for aging. A cure a for cure aging. A cure for yeah. aging. Right. What were yeah. you going to, like, what's your thought on that? I've been going off like, <laughs> talk on it, girl. I mean. What's wrong with that? When did aging become something that wasn't a natural part of life, like death? I mean, you were, I th- was it. Did you already talk about this with, like, the Buddhist four sites? Well, I actually was thinking just at that moment about how this is, uh, it reminds me of a term in Buddhism of the Preda, or the hungry ghost. If aging itself is considered a sickness, because what do you need a cure for? A sickness. Right. Something that shouldn't be. Yeah. Where does that end? It pushes us and pushes us to just complete annihilation. How could you possibly ever reach a point... That is good enough. But didn't we leave a point that was good enough? 
Isn't that what anthropologists have always found when they find indigenous people? They'll find things that to our civilized eyes look barbaric, terrible. <laughs> and yet when you talk to the people, for the most part, you don't see people who want to leave their tribe. You don't see people who, like, other than just being like impressed with the novelty of the new gizmo you showed them, feel like there's anything that needs to be fixed in their lives. What people need find their lives as things that need to be fixed our culture. It's the exact inversion of what they're telling us. We should be the people that are the happiest people on the planet, that are the most served by technology, but we find the exact opposite. And again, the conversation somehow always fails to address these profound observations. And, oh, one thing I left out of 2004 two years before, you know, this uh, Methuselah Mouse Prize Foundation to find the cure for aging. This is when Facebook enters the scene. Oh. Social media. Study after study has been done about what impact Facebook had in 2004. Um, there's a lot of evidence that Facebook was uh, pre-precluded before. Yeah. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, I'm not sure what you're trying to say. What's something that came before something else? Right now, I'm just trying to find a simple word. It, just say it came before something. All right, it came before something else. Facebook. <laughs> so there's a lot of evidence this thing came before Facebook. You remember what the CIA thing was called that you uh, actually did oh, research shoot. on? Oh, shoot. Yeah, I don't remember. But I was going to mention in the ABCs of CIA, they were, they were, doing, um, they were trying to use this program that they had to record... Every single event, every single happening in a person's life. And that included like your network of friends and acquaintances, all your life happenings. And, you know, in short, it was describing Facebook and other social media platforms. Yeah, let's not forget this was just a few short years after the Patriot Act where they have announced their intention to uh, surveil the entire population. Right, so when... You hear that transhumanists are pushing an agenda where human experiences, human lives can be simply uploaded to a mainframe. Don't forget that we're already doing that. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I've heard so many studies about how Facebook, you know, is meant to bring us together. But now, instead of having real friends, you've got these virtual friends. I even went to a talk on technology one time, and, you know, this guy said a lot of interesting things. He talked about the, you know, old problem with literacy and the, the dangers foreseen in that. But he also talked about how technology acts like a drug. A drug gives you a promise. It's going to make you feel so good. But then that promise fails you. It doesn't meet its prom promise, because after the drug, you feel worse than you did before. You've actually lowered a level. And he was specifically talking about Facebook, social media. It gives you the promise of connection. Now you can talk, you can post things, all your whole family can see it. You, you've got all these virtual friends from all over the globe. It should have brought us together. That was the sales pitch. Social media really is a way that we can connect. But the thing was, we already had connection. It was part right. of being the human animal. So the simulation of connection have done the opposite. 
Again, you know, I know we talk about South Park so often, but these guys satirize so much good stuff. There was that Facebook episode, and who was that guy, Kit, that had one Facebook friend, like Kyle felt sorry for him? And instead of going out and, like, maybe hanging out at the park, playing basketball, riding his bike where he'd actually run into real people, he was spending all his time getting on Facebook, making a little post about what he ate to see if his Facebook friend would say, LOL. (laughs) It actually separates us more because we spend more time either actually inside in front of the computer or even if we are outside, staring at our screens, scrolling, looking at pictures. And there's been so so many studies done that this makes us depressed because what people tend to want to share is the best of their lives instead of feeling like whiny little people and you know i know a few whiny little people on facebook and they're annoying too but it gives the impression that everybody's doing this fantastic crap they're out on this great vacation and you're like comparing that to your life and even though in reality your life might not look so different from theirs you're getting fed the illusion the simulation of a life and you feel like you're not adding up And then we have things that are uh, enabled through uh, social media like cyberbullying. Bullying used to be something that just a lot of people went through. And um, it was never a good thing. It was never something to be encouraged. But it was something that you accepted, that you had to learn how to deal with, um, how to respond to. But now through cyberbullying, you feel like the entire fucking community, your whole school turns on you. You feel like this public shaming that is out there in a way it never was before, forever recorded on the internet. It has just driven us into such a darker place. Social media has had such a profoundly bad effect on us. And even the people, like I say, I keep saying that do these posts that are against things like this, they're playing the game. They're still involved and promoting through its use this technology that divides us and isolates us. No post is so profound and so effective that it's worth the actual physical isolation it takes to play that game. And you said something about how we had socialization prior to Facebook, prior to the term social media, which is kind of nauseating in and of itself. And now what we do is when someone steps out of line, we deplatform them. And that's like... That's the end. It's like a social media suicide to be deplatformed. And this technology is so addictive. That was another thing at this talk I was mentioning that he uh, said it was like a drug. It's addictive. Once you start using it, you don't want to set it down. You sleep right next to your cell phone. Oh, my God, what if somebody calls you? You need this stuff that just before this technology came out, you were perfectly fine without. I know how it feels like when we're out here in the woods for a week and then I get and check... You know, my messages at first, I'm, I'm really excited. I want to see what's happening out there. Most of the time, nothing is happening out there. <laughs> yeah. And if it's one of those days that we spend hours trying to research something, I feel like shit after a few hours in front of the screen. I suspect other people who don't spend a week away from it like we do maybe have just normalized it so much they don't notice how they're feeling. Hmm. But I still, I, I feel like maybe I can feel more of the contrast And I can feel it's not good for me. It's not good for my mental health. And I'll also add, if I can remember my thought. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? That, yeah, right. Too bad we don't have those devices. Yeah. When I've tried in the past to bring community together, when Gumby and I have together tried to bring people together, 
for various, you know, for skills workshops or just a, you know, potluck or, or yoga class or whatever. It's really difficult to find a way to do that without using social media. Again, oh, sure, you have a choice, but really, you don't. And I was just thinking about how one of the few remaining choices that you have is to join an existing community, not online necessarily, um, but something like we listened to this one podcast and one of the people recently, she was like, uh, she grew up Christian, but then she like went to college and decided that she wasn't Christian. And now she, you know, started going to church again. And what uh, pushback is from the, the media, the mainstream media, social media, if you mention that you are, you know, a part of a church or part of some sort of, uh, you know, religious group, wow, whatever religion it might be, but especially Christians, it's like there's some agenda against not just the religious aspect, but the community that's formed around it. Don't you think? I mean, when people start talking about like, oh, I go to this church, you know, oh, all of a sudden they must be a Trump supporter. They must not support or believe in science. Um, You know, everything like the whole checklist that is your identity politics, you know. And while some of that may be true, it's not necessarily completely true. And so I just feel like a lot of times these avenues that are separate from technology, where you can actually communicate with people in person, are um, demonized. Yeah. Even Obama, I remember his uh, farewell speech as he's leaving office in Obama. You know, he's a bastard himself. I'm not a, a fan of Obama. But this one speech, I found it interesting that he was warning, like, a lot of presidents as they leave office, leave us with a warning. He warned about <laughs> social media. He warned about bubbles about being stuck in your own bubble. And I don't know, like, what that means to him or how what his agenda was behind that, but the warning was valid. And just what you're saying, Teresa, like, when you physically have to interact with people, you realize people are so nuanced. There's not one uh, sexuality they are, you know? Sometimes they are attracted to people this way. Sometimes they're attracted to people that way. Sometimes they're not even thinking about sex. There's no box they fit in. Sometimes they vote for this guy, even though they usually think this way. And maybe in the space of one conversation, they cover a whole gamut of ideas that they can explore. (laughs) But yeah, this social media, this computerization, we're starting to think more and more like machines. And what do machines like? They like categories. They like boxes. Oh, yeah. We are becoming these machines. This is what we're transitioning into. And if I can move on, if you you don't have any more ideas on that, three years after Facebook, one year after Peter Thiel donates his money to the uh, Cure for Aging, Twitter joins Facebook. So social media is growing stronger and stronger, more avenues to connect in this way through the Internet. (laughs) That was in 2007, you said? 2007, Twitter. The year after that, 2008, Peter Thiel once again donates $500,000 to fund the Seasteading Institute to establish experimental research facilities in international waters. That is so suspect. That's terrifying. I'm talking about the, and remember, Peter Thiel is a libertarian transhumanist, somebody who wants less government regulation. So now, 
He's taking steps. If you wondered, you know, we, I was trying to raise concerns about why would a technologist want more freedom? What does more freedom mean to a technologist? Here's what it means. He's establishing experimental research facilities in international waters. Why would he want them in international waters? Because the laws of the countries that surround these waters don't apply. In other words, they're free to do any god-awful research they want. There are regulations in place right now, even though governments always have secret organizations because they want to find out how to gain more power and more control as well and to get to it first before the other country. So it's moving forward, but people like Peter Thiel want it to move it forward as fast as they can. They want complete freedom to experiment on the human animal, to experiment on fetuses, babies, cloning pushing people as far as they can, human experimentation, uh, viruses, anything that we can push forward. And some of these regulations in place, even though they are absolutely imperfect and come from a place of government control, which I don't agree with, some of the feeling that promotes these ideas is, whoa, slow down. This could be dangerous. We <laughs> want the power. We're going to get there. But let's go at this pace. Peter Thiel is funding experimental research as early as 2008. This has been around for 13 years now to have unchecked research. Fuck the danger. Let's move forward as fast as we can. If we make a bomb that blows up the whole earth, well, I think we'll take that gamble because we could find a cure for aging, things like <laughs> that. And 2008 is also the time when we have smartphones. Now the cell phone and the Bluetooth aren't enough, this constant communication, and carrying around your laptop so you've got your little computer brain anytime you want to open it, your uh, augmented brain, which is basically what a computer is, now your smartphone. Now you can carry around this tiny little thing that is basically Penny's book from Inspector Gadget. It does everything. You never have to be apart from the Internet. I always roll my eyes when people talk about computer chips or how bad something is. I remember when we went to the Silent Sam statue protest, and they're opposing racism. All these college kids carrying around their fucking smartphones. I'm like, do you guys know what it takes to make a smartphone? Do you know what that smartphone is doing to you? You feel like you're fighting something bad in the world by tipping over a statue covered with pigeon shit? And you would have done more good in the world if all of you would have smashed your smartphones in front of that sat statue and said, we're going to stop this line of technology right here. You're becoming cyborgs, transhumanists. You are transhumanists. You can't be apart from the Internet. It's been shown over and over this has destructive, bad effects on the human animal. And we're going to end this episode here in 2009. Eliza Yudkowsky publishes the blog and forum that he calls Less Wrong, <laughs> which led to the infamous thought experiment, Rocco's Basilisk. Rocco's Basilisk has been banned. Its discussion on forums has been banned. Now, I invite you to look for yourself to research Rocco's Basilisk. There are people that would say that I am a fucking idiot in doing something so dangerous right now as mentioning it, especially calling this episode um, Rise of Rocco's Basilisk. Now, 
we had a hard time wrapping our minds around this thing, and it's going to be even harder trying to describe it. But basically, one of the tenets of transhumanism is that it is inevitable that very soon AI is going to reach a point where it becomes a superintelligence, that it takes control of all of our technology, and since we are addicted and reliant on that technology, it's going to take control of us. We will have a government by algorithm. That means by computer. Um, this technological singularity, basically we will have invented our own god. In a creator, our we will have invented our own creator, which is a machine that can create. Yeah, I wouldn't word it that way because it didn't really create us. We created it. Oh, well, we have invented a creator. Let's say it that way. Yeah, I mean, in the future, after this thing's been around for a while, hell, when it's cloning babies and everything, they might actually look back and see that as their creator. <laughs> but in our pursuit to be gods ourselves, we will have created our own god, which will be a technological god. Now, what transhumanists teach is we need to get in front of this thing. Elon Musk... Um, shit, I always forget his name. The guy in the wheelchair. Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking. Um, a lot of the top people that understand this say and agree, this is going to happen. We need to know it's going to happen and really take control of this thing to make sure it's good for humanity. Otherwise, <laughs> it could be bad for humanity. Yeah. Basically, Rocco's Basilisk is the idea of what if we fail in this task? What if we create something that is bad for humanity? Consider how fast technology is moving now that still pretty much under human control, arguably. It's moving so fast. We're getting nanotechnology. We're getting uh, internet that just replaces communication, replaces human interaction. We're getting technology that moves us across the globe really fast. We're exploring space. So we're, there's discussions of moving into space, leaving the Earth behind altogether. Now, what if this technological singularity takes over, and it's so smart that it does what all the best human minds can do, but what it takes them years to do, it does in minutes. It jumps through technology. Boom, 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 boom. We can't even imagine how exponentially fast technology could move. And Rocco's Basilisk is a thought experiment that if this happens, this thing could move through time. Time, in theory, could be transcended. This thing could affect the past as well as the future. Rocco's Basilisk has something to do with what this thing could do to people that aren't in favor of this technology. What would it feel and think about people who did not want Rocco's Basilisk to arise? In other words, if we're on a path, and it, supposedly the people that are scared of this, and these are uber nerds, I don't know how much of this to take seriously or not, but the people that take it seriously take it very seriously. If we were on a path, and every time we mention it, they say we actually encourage it more because we're bringing the idea into manifestation. If we're on a path towards Rocco's Basilisk being born, this thing is going to be able to know, possibly, the people who are warning against the creation of Rocco's Basilisk. It's kind of like being on Santa's good list versus bad list. Okay. And... <laughs> They even speculate, what if we're in a program now? Now, Teresa brought up this idea without all the backing and thinking it through a while back, and we had a big argument about it. I'm like, that's, you know, you know, acting like we're in the Matrix, I find that ridiculous. Like, what do you have to back it up? What, like, it just sounds like one of those crazy theories. Like, where's the evidence? 
But this is part of their fear, too. What if right now, just like the people in the Matrix think it's, I don't know, 1980 or whatever they say in the Matrix, what if we don't know we're in it and some of the bad shit that's happening now is part of the punishment, part of the um, world creation of this basilisk, Rocco's basilisk? And I don't know that there's much more I can say about that, but it's basically the fear of transhumanists manifested in a word, a phrase, Rocco's Basilisk, if we don't take control of our technology. It also reminded me when I was looking up the word basilisk for some reason, and I hate doing this when I don't have it written down, but I thought I read something that reminded me of a Buddhist koan or something. But this is like not rooted in enlightened thought. This is more rooted in like super nerddom. But the same kind of result that it it gives your mind something to chew with the added detriment that it could cause the technological singularity to come back in time and punish us. And you may be like me and kind of want to dismiss this as just kind of a geek fantasy thing, but keep in mind that the the people that are shaping your the, your day-to-day life that are coming up with the technology, you're already completely affected by the internet, by uh, smartphones, by smart cars. These people are building the world around you. In fact, this is not just some crazy science fiction story. This is our world now. If you're hearing me, you already exist in this world. So these crazy theories like Rocco's Basilisk are taken seriously by the people that are up front, that understand the most about what they're creating and the dangers of it and warn against it and insanely still move forward into that. So, there's that. Do you have any... I wanted to end right there. Do you have any uh, thoughts, Teresa, or final words that you want to say as we close out? I guess what I'm getting from all of this is that... Um, It's not so theoretical, you know, like we talk about the nerds and everything. The nerds who are creating this stuff say it's not only theoretical, it is inevitable. Right. And um, it's really scary because it is happening and that word exponential, it either is coming up like we're saying it in this episode or it's coming up when I hear these things that it this the speed at which the technology is is moving forward is exponentially increasing like twice as fast 16 times as fast whatever and I guess I'm just wondering you know hoping maybe is the better word hoping that uh somehow I don't know a wrench gets thrown into this machine and brings it to a screeching halt but I don't know yeah and we need to take a really sober look at our part in this you may think you're just a bystander You know, some old fogey just kind of like, ah, I don't approve of it, and i got to use it. You may actually think you're opposing this. But unless you're actually doing something and not with their own toys, we're all part of this. We are helping build this right now. Right, And, and, and even though we talked about that there isn't much of a choice with this technology, just looking at it for what it is and realizing there is a choice because the conversation always is moved towards, well, these are your choices. You know, you can either 
be on the good side of the technological singularity or the bad side. Or you could just not let it happen. Like there's no third option and they, they constantly How do that. How would we that. not let it happen? Well, I said kill the nerds, but I don't know. Maybe that's too violent for people to hear. Even if it wasn't too violent. I mean, how the hell do you kill the nerds? They become the most powerful, influential people. I don't know, because all this stuff with, like, science, technology, engineering, and math is being pushed so hard down the throats of children that may have otherwise not wanted to be involved in it. You know, coders. What were we listening to? There's, like, they want to take all these um, children in Africa that are, like, poor or whatever and, like, turn them into computer coders. Like, we are pushing this forward again, again, at an exponential rate. Everyone's mind is being turned to be a slave to the machine, whether you want it to be or not. So I don't know. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is to really ask yourself seriously what you can, as an individual, do to pull away from it. If more people maybe could set an example that we don't need this, I wonder if possibly more people would look at their lives that are just up to their ears in technology and recognize, like, this sucks. This really sucks. I'm in a living hell, and I didn't know there was an alternative. That's the only thing I can think of, is to try to give an example as, as much as we can um, to showing that alternative. And that, that actually reminds me of somebody that I've been meaning to say congratulations to, which is Soraya Rose, who's written in a couple times. Sorry. And, uh, her, uh, her, her fella, uh, Cross Fox, I think he uh, answers to. But, you know, among people who are really trying to give it up and lead an alternative lifestyle, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Soraya Rose, but I believe she just had her baby, like, in a bus out in the woods. You know, like, they're really exploring, like, obviously they're using some technology because she listens to our podcast, but, uh, yeah, there are people out there really trying to see what they can do without, and some people are pushing further than others, but it's not a competition. How much can you do without? If you feel like you're at your line, well, congratulations for getting there. <laughs> maybe so, people, they'll stop listening to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. And that could be, if, if where you're giving up everything else with it, I would encourage that. <laughs> Maybe we'll see you on the road. And our listener write-in, we've got Eric from Livingston, Texas, and he was writing in response to Black Magic White Science Part 1. He wrote, Science and our very civilization is very much like a kind of black magic or deal with the devil. Totally agree with the analogy. It, it is literally like a deal with the devil, as I described in my own experience, where it's in, you know, invites you in with all these promises. And uh, then you're you're cursed, you're addicted. It's like you find yourself stuck in hell. And it's hard to find your way back out of that. Um, but again, I would also say Eric is just in the same boat like the rest of us. We're complaining about the very thing that we're not neutral, we're not opposing, we're actually helping build. And we got to face that. We are the transhumanists. So... Uh, you can find us on our Facebook page, found at Escaping Society. <laughs> that sounds so ridiculous after we've been talking so much shit about technology. Yeah, yeah, I know. We need to take some hard looks. And I am starting to look more and more uh, soberly at some of the shit we're doing. Uh, we were talking about ditching the podcast just yesterday. You know, we take turns kind of getting in these moods like, what are we doing? Um, but you also got to think about what you're turning to. You can't just let something go. You've got to reach out and grab something. 
Um, but yeah, for now, Facebook, Escaping Society. Um, we've got a website, www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in basilisk.com. <laughs> Um, we've got a YouTube channel with some videos that can maybe help you escape society. If you're moving into your van, if you're uh, wanting to learn more about edible plants and mushrooms, survival skills, um, we've got a few things that could help you out there. And we've got a donate button. Uh, we uh, run on the value for value system. If you've gotten any value from our podcast, please consider giving us a donation. Helps us get down the road a little bit further. Um, and please review us. Um, we're on Apple as many as well as many other podcast carriers, and you can give us five stars. Uh, that helps get us out there more, but I would say don't give us five stars if you don't think we deserve it. Um, and write us a review. We love that. Write to us. Um, it will add you to our listener write-in list, and uh, you know we try to find listener write-ins that kind of match the topic of the episode we're doing, and we always love receiving them, especially the ones that come through our website. Um, those are really fun to read. Anything else, Teresa? That's it. All right. We Get will, rid of your technology now. Yeah. We will uh, try to conclude this episode next episode. Might be two more episodes. We'll see. But uh, bye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.